0: This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and wanna hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on Bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot Welcome to part two of our special two-part outlook series in which we speak with Barings experts across asset classes and geographies to get their views on 2020, including the biggest risks they see on the horizon, the most compelling opportunities, and even some bold predictions for the year ahead. If you missed part one, definitely go back and check that out. We talked about macroeconomics, politics, trade wars, And we heard some interesting perspectives on why EM currencies, international equities, and short-duration EM debt might outperform in 2020. We also heard how a China slowdown could be the biggest tail risk, and why we might see the reemergence of U.S. wage inflation in 2020. In part two, we'll start off talking high-yield and investment-grade credit with Barings' David Mihalik before moving on to private credit, private equity, and real estate. Remember to check out the episode segments listed below the episode description on whichever podcast platform you're listening on for help with navigating these two episodes. Without further ado, here is David Mahalik, head of U.S. Public Fixed Income and U.S. High Yield. All right, David Mahalik, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to talk about high yield. We're going to talk about investment grade all in the context of 2020. So maybe let's start with what you see as the biggest risk on the horizon for 2020.
1: Well, as we look forward to 2020, I think it's probably instructive to look back at 2019. Clearly, it's been a very, very strong year for fixed income, investment grade, high yield, both double-digit type returns as we sit here today, and spreads are at relatively tight levels. I think with the Fed cutting rates recently, there's a lot of optimism about the economic outlook. Uh, You don't hear people talking about recession risk in 2020. I think you go back 12, 18 months ago, a lot of people were talking about Mm. the potential for late 19 into 20 there being a risk of recession. Clearly the Fed has taken that off the table. So that said, there's a lot of macro things out there, Brexit, trade uncertainty, and then don't underestimate the fact that we're going into a very divisive election year in the US. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that some of those headline issues bleed through to the real economy and investors start to think there's the potential for an economic slowdown, if that starts to get priced in, I think you could argue spreads today are probably too tight and you could see a real disruption in the market.
0: Yeah, so I guess maybe there could be some complacency creeping into the market, especially with regards to the performance of the economy overall. Certainly, we've seen equity markets breaking out to new highs in recent weeks and months. So. Talk to us about what you've seen in terms of the performance of of credit markets.
1: Yeah, if you think just a few months ago, we had an inverted yield curve, mildly inverted, and there was no shortage of headlines about that being the forecaster of a recession. We get a couple rate cuts, we get some reasonable economic numbers, the yield curve has steepened a little bit, and all of a sudden, again, recession risk seems to be off the table. That said, back to the fact that there are a lot of macro things out there that could bleed through to the real economy, And so I think that's a you know a reason to be thoughtful in terms of how you approach the market.
0: That makes sense. Let's talk about opportunities now. What are you seeing in terms of compelling opportunities in twenty twenty?
1: Well, if we start with the high yield market and look at two thousand nineteen, clearly double B's perform the strongest. If you look at double B spreads today relative to triple B's, which is the lowest level of investment grade, spreads are actually at all time tights. On the other side of that, single B and triple C credit has lagged a bit, still positive performance for the year, but not as strong as double B's. And if you look at double B spreads relative to triple C spreads, they're actually at all time wides. So given our base case that we think the economy is gonna perform well in 2020, we think there's opportunity for active managers to find value in single B and triple C rated credits. A lot of these are relatively good companies. Rating agencies tend to be slow to upgrade companies, and so there's triple C credits, for example, trading at very attractive sort of total return opportunities to near-term call dates that we think are very refinanceable. So those are real good tactical opportunities, we think, in 2020.
0: Got it, so I guess this bifurcation that we've seen as a real theme in credit markets is feeding through to potentially some value opportunities, but I guess it's the type of thing where, especially if you're buying lower-rated credit, obviously you need to do your homework and you have the right teams in place to evaluate them.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if you look at triple C spreads, for example, in late 2019, those are at like a thousand over, but that's Mm -hmm. made up of a variety of names, some that are distressed and a lot wider than that, some that are tighter than that. So when you weigh down into those lower quality parts of the market, it's really important to be very active, know what you're buying. And so that bottoms up approach is very, very important. You can't just buy the market.
0: Sure. Now, what about if you look at the investment-grade part of the market? Anything jumping out at you in terms of opportunities there?
1: Investment-grade corporates have had a very strong year. Again, similar to double Bs and high-yield spreads are at relatively tight levels. But I think if you look beyond just traditional corporate credit into some of the securitization areas of the market, those areas have grown. And I think spreads are relatively attractive there. And so we think that's an area to look, again, beyond sort of traditional corporate credit into those types of markets. If you think about the high-yield market, it's not just the U.S. bond market. It's not just the U.S. bond and loan market. You can also buy the European market. You can incorporate structured credit. You can incorporate private credit. So thinking about a credit allocation more dynamically certainly is what we've seen our investor base interested in in high-yield And now in investment grade, it's sort of the same story. It's not just buying IG corporates, it's looking beyond those, looking at the ABS market, which has grown and there's a lot of different types of ABS, different risk profiles. So taking that multi-credit approach, I think is the way to access the markets today. Makes a lot of sense.
0: All right, David, bold predictions. What is one bold prediction you would make for 2020?
1: Well, if I look at the last couple of years and the big headlines in markets in terms of i g and high yield, and i g, it's been the growth of the triple B market. In the high yield universe, it's been the growth of the leveraged loan market. and there's been a lot of dire predictions about you know if we go into an economic cycle, you could have, for example, in the investment grade, a wave of sort of triple B fallen angels that really impact the high yield market. Yep. Similarly, leverage loans, things around covenant quality, just again, the absolute size of the market as it's sure. grown. Yep. But when you take a step back and kind of look at 2019, again, the economy's performed well. We're optimistic about how the economy will perform in 2020. And so I don't think the fallen angel wave is going to materialize. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 2019, upgrades from high yield into investment grade were significantly more than downgrades from hmm. investment grade into high yield.
0: You want to know that from reading most of the headlines.
1: That's right. And if you think about the triple B companies that were issuing all of this debt, these are generally high quality companies and debt was very cheap. So as companies looked, you know, at strategic priorities whether it was M&A, share repurchases, dividends, You know, they could access the debt markets cheaply. There was no real penalty from kind of going from single A down to triple B. And Mm -hmm. so companies Mm -hmm. levered up to do strategic things. Mm. But again, these are big quality companies with a lot of financial flexibility. And so what we've seen through 2019 is that these companies have been very focused on improving their balance sheets. Now again, there'll be exceptions. There'll mm-hmm, be companies mm-hmm. that do get downgraded, and we've seen that, but I don't think it'll be this wave of right. a large number of companies across yep. the board. And again, some of that's driven by our economic outlook, but really more driven by the fact that these are generally good companies with a lot of financial flexibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
0: how would you expect things to play out with regards to the leverage loan market that you mentioned has grown pretty
1: significantly? Sure, the loan market today in the U.S. is about $1.3 trillion. It's virtually doubled over the last 10 years. There again, if you think about when we were in an environment where rates were rising, investors globally seeking yield, and the leveraged loan asset class was in demand. So smart treasurers at companies, if they had a choice over the last several years to issue loans or bonds, they were issuing loans. They were relatively cheap, relatively flexible form of capital. Today, the leveraged loan market's a bit choppier. We've now seen retail outflows with all of the rate cuts that have happened. And so that's created a technical weakness in the loan market. And I think you're seeing less loan issuance today. You know, in terms of bold predictions, is it bold to say that given these technicals, you'll see the size of the loan market level off a bit? I think you could see that. I don't think you'll continue to see the type of growth in the loan market. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a bold prediction, but (laughs) I think, again, it's been such a headline issue the last few years, the growth of the loan market. I think you'll start to see that level off a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, whether or not it's a bold prediction, I think it's great context, both around the triple B issue and the loan market. So, David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Another asset class that got a lot of press and not all of it good in 2019 was private credit. So let's hear now from Ian Fowler, co-head of Baring's Global Private Finance Group, on what he's thinking about the year ahead. All right, Ian Fowler, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks, Greg, for having me.
0: I appreciate you dialing in from our Chicago office where winter is well underway. So let's talk about 2020 and let's talk about the private credit market. Tell me, what is the biggest risk you see on the horizon as you sit here today?
2: Yeah, so look, I think, and it's important uh, for investors to, to focus on this. We've been talking now for the last several years, three or four years, about the end of the cycle, and we've been using the the term, the seventh inning, to describe where we are in the economic cycle and credit cycle. And unfortunately, we're not going to know when we hit the end of that cycle till it occurs. So, and one of the biggest risks in the private credit direct lending market is in the last year, volume has declined somewhat in terms of new LBO issuance compared to 2017 and 2018, which were record years. And there has been a lot of capital that's been raised in, in the middle market. And with so much capital being raised, a lot of it is targeted to a certain type of structure, which is referred to as a unit tranche structure, which is an alternative to a traditional senior and junior structure.
0: Sort of a hybrid between the junior capital and traditional senior debt, is that fair to say?
2: That's fair to say, in the junior capital could be in the form of a second lien or it could be mezzanine. But with this capital that's being raised for this unitron structure, the benefit is that for managers is that they can, there's really no limit in terms of how deep they can go into the capital structure of the company they're financing. So for example, you know, we have seen in software companies leverage of seven to seven and a half times in a company that has an enterprise value of 20 times. And so a manager may say, well, from a loan-to-value perspective, you're 50% or less, so we're conservative in our structure, but the loan-to-value is not going to pay you back uh, your loan. It's not generating cash. And quite frankly, if purchase price multiples change, as we expect they do through a cycle, your loan-to-value is going to change with it. And so spreads are being compressed and leverage is increasing, as you said, Greg. Traditionally, this is a piece of paper that's replacing senior and junior capital, and so the all-in spread from that traditional piece of paper would be much higher than where Unitronch is because of the compressed prices. And so, in effect, you're not being paid for that embedded junior capital risk in in these deals. Yes, it's firstly in senior, but our point is. Just because it's first lien doesn't mean it's senior debt risk. And it's really important for investors to understand how deep their managers are going in the capital stack and making sure that they're getting paid for that risk. Because we actually are now referring it to not senior debt risk when you're seven times or seven and a half times deep, but you're really equity risk, right? Which is a form of mezzanine equity because you're so deep in the capital stack
0: equity risk. That's the first I've heard that term, just coined here uh, by you, Ian. So that's a fairly sobering look, I would say, but, but perhaps unsurprising, I guess, given all the capital we've seen flow into the asset class, perhaps you know, being late cycle, it's not terribly surprising that you see valuations rich in parts of the market and perhaps places within that capital stack where investors may not be receiving the best potential returns for the risk that they're taking. So I think that's a really interesting perspective. Let's transition to opportunities. As you look out into the year ahead, what jumps out at you as being the most compelling opportunity?
2: So right now, specifically, we see pockets of mispriced assets in relative value in selective broadly syndicated loan opportunities uh, because in, in the broadly syndicated loan market with single B credits, investors have pushed back. And now the illiquidity premium between liquid and illiquid assets is really at a historic low mm. and so our hope is from a middle market lender we start to see some of that improved terms pricing move into the to the middle market which is not liquid and it's opaque and so there's always a lag between the two but if this continues in the broadly syndicated loan market we could see, more opportunities arising in the middle market.
0: So I guess some of the technical pressures that we've seen from, you know, retail mutual fund selling, et cetera, in the broadly syndicated loan market have pressured that market, potentially making it look more attractive to what you're seeing in what is traditionally considered more the private middle market direct lending space. And it's interesting that you and the team are looking across those two related asset classes for opportunities for relative value.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we can go back to fourth quarter of last year. We saw similar volatility. It was technical in nature. It didn't last, so there wasn't much of an impact on the middle market. If this volatility that we see today does last, it will have, at some point, a impact on the market. As an investor that has investments across both liquid and illiquid strategies we're always focused on relative value and illiquidity premiums as we think about pricing our deals. It just does not make any sense at all that a $10 million business has the same terms pricing and leverage as a single B-rated credit. But also, I can tell you within the middle market itself, there are some pockets of mispriced assets. And you know, one area, for example, is As we look at the middle market, it's really defined as historically as five to 50 million of EBITDA. I would say that a lot of managers in direct lending have moved up market above 50, uh, trying to disintermediate the broadly syndicated loan market. And the issue with that part of the market strategy is that it's really taking on broadly syndicated loan terms without the liquidity. And so we see that as a mispriced asset in a bad way. You're not getting paid for the risk. And on the lower end of the middle market, where there's just so much capital chasing so few deals, and we've seen price compression there. But what we do see in the middle of the middle market is larger companies that are market leaders in certain niches, are diversified, have a reason to exist, that are not overly levered, like the upper market, are are levered similar to the lower end, But you're getting paid basically the same spread. And so we find that to be the most attractive and compelling opportunity in the middle market. We coin it, Boeing is beautiful. It's really focused on senior traditional first lien debt that's around four to four and a half times in companies that are not all that exciting, but we know they're going to pay back the loan
0: boring is beautiful. You and I talked about this concept a few months ago on another podcast episode and uh, we talked actually a pretty good detail at that time around this dynamic that you're talking about where you've got pressure both at the top end of the middle market and at the bottom end of the middle market. And where you and the team are seeing opportunity is more in the traditional middle part of the middle market, if you will. So it sounds like that is a conviction that you and the team still hold. As you look ahead to the year to come, give me one bold prediction in terms of how you think things might play out.
2: Well, I always break out and hives when I'm asked about <laughs> predicting. And and when you talk about bold predicting, <laughs> it makes me really nervous. But I think I would say that we are in some uncharted waters. And, and on this theme that we've been discussing with the middle market and the change in the footprint of the middle market, I would look at it from a perspective of a change in investment style. And so this is my prediction. And it's a change in the middle market where the traditional definition of the middle market, 5 to 50, doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. We could argue that it's 5 to 150 million of EBITDA as certain direct lenders have moved up market. And as I said, they've, they've, they've been disintermediating the broadly syndicated market to put more dollars to work. Why are they putting more dollars to work? Well, because it's all about investment cadence. They have raised mega funds. And the only way to invest that capital in a 3-year investment time frame is the move up market. And so that has resulted in the expansion of the footprint and these mega club deals where you might have a $800 million facility that's split between three or four direct lenders. There's no liquidity in those deals and unfortunately for them they might be getting paid more by providing the Certainty and reducing the execution risk and the the need to have to go through rating agencies. So all those are positive things for the issuer and sponsor. But what the issuer has done is said, for us to give you that business, we want the terms that we would get in the broadly syndicated loan market, and that's where you have seen structural degradation at its worst. And so. My prediction is, and and I could be wrong, they might create a whole new market for themselves. But without any covenants, these companies, if they get into trouble, it's going to be a liquidity crisis. And they're big companies. And so to fix a liquidity crisis means big dollars. And usually in a liquidity crisis, you don't have access to good information. So these managers might make money on this strategy in the short term especially if the Brawley syndicated loan market comes back in a big way. But to me, that's like picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Because if some of these deals default, whatever gains they got from higher fees, is going to be more than offset by losses.
0: All right, Ian, sounding uh, what I would say is a cautionary tone for market. I mean, it, it will be a fascinating market to follow in the year ahead, absolutely. The market itself has changed and morphed so much, as you've alluded to, with regards to competing more and more against the broadly syndicated loan market. And, you know, potentially there are risks that are creeping in that investors need to pay attention to. So I think the message that I come away with is that risk management really is paramount at this point in the cycle. So your perspectives are much valued as always, Ian. Thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Mequity risk. Well, you heard it here first. Ian Fowler coining new terms. Great to hear that perspective on private markets. So let's go from private credit to private equity and hear from Elizabeth Weindruck, managing director within our funds and co-investments team, part of Bearings Alternative Investments. All right, Elizabeth Weindruck, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you for having me, Greg.
0: I am excited to have you here. So let's get right into it and let's start with risks. There probably is not a shortage of risks on the horizon but what jumps out at you as, I guess, being the biggest risk for private equity markets in 2020?
3: So I don't think anyone would argue with me if I made the statement that we are fairly late in in this current market cycle. Mm-hmm. And so when we're in this sort of the later stage of this expansion, I think that there are a number of continued risks that have been out there, but they're just a little more prevalent today within private markets. And if I were to boil it down to a, to a couple of things, they're all related, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, a combination of very high purchase price multiples at the larger end of the market, as well as increased competition. Mm. What this is resulting in is compressed deal timelines, and I'm not going to say shortcuts in due diligence, but I'm gonna say just compressed due diligence timelines and maybe certain adjustments being made to earnings of businesses. And so I think the combination of, of increased capital chasing more deals, shortened deal timelines, as well as the high prices that are getting paid in today's market all create a climate of deals that have been priced to perfection. And I think that's very dangerous as we think about where we are in the current market cycle and what cracks could possibly occur and those businesses' ability to withstand a downturn from a performance perspective as well as a leverage perspective.
0: Would you describe some of what you're seeing in private equity markets today as kind of classically late cycle behavior?
3: Yes, it's late cycle behavior. It's different than what we were seeing coming into the peak of the prior market cycle, but the high purchase prices in combination with the commensurate leverage to get to those prices are two characteristics that we saw back in 05-06 kind of coming into the peak of the market that we are seeing today. I think that in combination with the amount of dry powder that is out in the marketplace, that just exacerbates the existing problem and I think has people fairly concerned.
0: Okay. And if you talk about um, accelerated due diligence timeframes, that sounds like a kind way to put it, frankly. Mm-hmm. But um, what does that mean, really? I mean, are you talking about essentially there's a lot of competition for transactions and therefore? maybe the extensive due diligence that you might like to see is not happening?
3: So a difference between what was happening then and what's happening now is that I think that the markets have gotten a lot more efficient. And so most deals that are coming to market are going to be banked, right? Even if it's a much smaller business. So you're seeing brokers effectively leading transactions. And instead of saying you have 30 days to do your diligence, they're shortening it to 21, they're asking for preemptive bids, so they are basically increasing the sense of competition mm-hmm. that is out there in the market. And I think that sponsors are responding by throwing all their resources at a deal to due diligence, but at the end of the day are having a shorter time frame in which to get to their bids and to get to their conclusions.
0: Okay, so if you are seeing, in some parts of the market, classically late-cycle behavior, if you're seeing high valuations in parts of the market, that sort of thing. Is it difficult to find opportunity out there today? So, what are you seeing from an opportunity standpoint in private equity?
3: So, one, I don't want to be overly negative because there are still some really great opportunities in the market today. From our perspective in the private markets, we are seeing opportunities really in three places lower middle market, traditional private equity, co investments, and real assets. And within those broader categories, there are specific opportunities within each. And so, If you look at the lower end of the market, we are seeing opportunities with a subset of groups that I'll just call emerging managers. They're mostly first-time funds who have spun out from a prior institution. Generally, they have a track record, a history of working together, but more importantly, a hunger and a drive to succeed. And they are significantly aligned with their investors. So we are seeing really interesting opportunities there. And I think with the amount of capital that's in the market today, there are more groups that are being encouraged to spend out. So if you look at the number of first-time funds that were in the market 10 years ago, it's 4x today what it was back in Mm. 2009. Mm. And then within co-investments, it's a way to get to know sponsors better, but it's also a way to kind of enhance the performance within your portfolio by getting access to invest capital in an individual transaction. And so it allows us to go in and do deep diligence on that deal to develop conviction around it. Mm -hmm. And then within real assets, we are seeing opportunities specifically within the metals and mining space. And it's really interesting if you think about where commodity prices are, there are some great opportunities in what I'll just kind of call later stage development deals, where we've seen a lot of compelling opportunities within the past few weeks. And we think that kind of going into 2020, there are going to be really interesting opportunities within that space.
0: That's great. So that's encouraging to hear that even in spite of high valuations in parts of the market, there's still pockets of value where you're finding opportunity. And I guess for our listeners, I would mention that on your point around emerging managers, we actually spoke with your colleague, Mina Nazemi, mm-hmm. about this topic on a prior episode. And you and I spoke on a prior episode to talk a little bit more in detail about the co-investment
3: opportunity. Yes.
0: Sounds like we need to do an episode on real assets. So we haven't
3: done that yet. We should do an a- episode on real assets on metals and mining. Definitely. And I'm probably not your person for it. <laughs> but um, but but someone on my team I know would yeah. be—we've got a lot of passion within that space, within yeah. our team. So we can find the right person great, to come and talk great. about it.
0: I can see our podcast mm-hmm. calendar for 2020 already mm-hmm. starting to formulate here. This is great. Okay, so let's talk about bold predictions. And I know these can be difficult to make, but I'm going to ask you the question anyhow. So looking forward to 2020, what is one prediction that you would make in your space?
3: This is a hard one. I think that I'm comfortable saying that 2020 is going to be a pivotal year for the continued democratization of private equity. And what that means is that private equity is an asset class that has traditionally been available to the very large and very sophisticated institutional investor. What we've seen in the past 10 years is private equity opportunities, and it's not just private equity. Honestly, it's all private markets, Mm -hmm. but we're seeing the availability of private markets investment opportunities being provided to the retail markets as well as the mass markets in general. And so there are a lot of interesting things going on from a structural perspective. And so if it's a 40-act fund for an accredited investor or if it's an interval fund for an everyday investor, I think that there's going to be a continued push to make this asset class available to everybody. And the reason is because we're generating outperformance at this end of the market. And I think that it's something that folks think that should be available to everyone. Now, that's not without risks around things like liquidity and valuations and just understanding really what these markets do. Mm-hmm. But if I were to make my bold prediction for 2020, that would be it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, private equity markets have been less accessible historically to broader groups of investors. I think it makes a lot of sense to potentially widen that over time. But as you say, there are a lot of considerations, especially when you think about liquidity and other concerns to think about. But I think that is a bold prediction for 2020. (laughs) So I appreciate it. Liz, this has been great. I think we've got a lot to follow up on as we go into 2020 and we start to think about exploring some of these ideas and getting the discussion going with our clients. So I appreciate you joining me. Happy to do it. It seems that valuations in private markets are definitely concerning to some of our teams here at Bearings. Let's see if our next and final guest shares this sentiment. Here is John Ockerbloom, head of U.S. Real Estate Equity. All right, John Ockerbloom, thank you so much for joining me great this morning. To be here. Uh, I'm excited to have you here. It'll be great to hear your views as you start to think ahead to 2020 and what the picture looks like there. So maybe let's start with risk. Can you give me a sense for, as you look out at the market in 2020, what, what do you see as the biggest risk on the horizon?
4: It's a great question and we think about it a lot. I suppose I would say... The greatest risk is kind of the cumulative effect of the election cycle. Almost really irrespective of outcome, the question is, we know that elections produce uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uncertainty creates inaction. Sure. Um, transaction volume slow, people's willingness to take risk diminishes. And so the question I guess I ask myself is, will we see a slowdown mm-hmm. during the election as people pause to try to read the tea leaves to determine the outcome? Mm. My greater concern with respect to that is, let's assume that the answer to that question is yes, and that there is a pause. Well, I sort of wonder if that has a an effect similar to throwing the lights on in a bar at one thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, things that seemed like a great idea not that long ago right. no longer seem like such a good idea. And I wonder if participants in the market will be willing to wade back into the high water yeah. of where we exist today, where everything is priced to perfection. Growth is almost assumed, and credit is very easy. Mm -hmm. And so the question, I guess, that I have more globally is, you know, might we see a pause that sustains for some period of time through 20 and into 21? Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective.
0: So I guess the elections could have somewhat of a sobering effect. And I guess you're saying that given where everything is priced today, will investors be willing to come back into the point where we are right now once that cycle is
4: passed correct you look at where things are valued you look at the ease of credit the just massive capital flowing and it does beg that question upon a pause do you re-enter sure. at as high a point uh, as you exited yes. when you paused yes, yes that's yes. really the question got it got
0: it well that's great perspective as we start to think about opportunities so you talk about valuations you talk about things being priced for perfection I imagine maybe it's harder to find opportunity in that type of environment. So as you look at the universe broadly heading into the new year, what do you see in there from an opportunity perspective?
4: I personally kind of find the opportunity to be oddly in the very best assets, which nominally have the lowest yields associated with them, Hmm. but I think have the most durable values. Mm -hmm. My observation would be that the market is largely chasing yield, chasing return, And I'm not certain that actors in the market are being adequately compensated for the risk that they're taking in order to pursue that yield. So if, as an example, absolute return for a core asset is X, uh, at one time, you might expect a premium of 2X um, for a value-add or more opportunistic investment in Mm -hmm. a similar Mm -hmm. asset class. Today, that premium might be Mm 1.3X. And when you look, you say, How durable is that income stream over time, that return, that yield? How are you being compensated for the risk? Everything has come down in terms of all in return, but my opinion is that the very best assets have come down less Mm. uh, than assets more around the periphery. So uh, oddly, I look to the best assets, Mm -hmm. nominally have the lowest yields, but I think have the best durability and are likely to be the best performers over the next three to five years.
0: That's really interesting. So you talk a little bit about the best assets out there. Help me understand what does that actually mean when you talk about the best assets. Sure.
4: So uh, I guess when I say the best, I mean best within their markets, best uh, from a location standpoint, from an amenity standpoint, from a competitive position standpoint. For an industrial asset, maybe it's specific location relative to major interchanges from a distribution standpoint. For a multifamily asset, maybe it's walkability or the quality of its city score, which is something that we pay very careful attention to at Bearings. So really, assets that are the best in their class within the locations where they're situated. And generally, it means newer. doesn't always mean newer, but generally, it means newer. It certainly means the most up-to-date, the most functional. So it's not to say that people won't make money converting a Class B multifamily asset into a Class A minus or converting a tired office into a creative office or something uh, new from a co-working standpoint or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think they will, mm-hmm. but from where we said, we have to think very carefully about taking those steps when there were very good assets available to us and available to be created that produce good yields over time that we think will perform in and out of cycle. I'm just not sure you're being adequately compensated for the risk that you take mm-hmm. in value add and opportunistic investing to the same extent as I would like. Yeah. So in other words, it's really a relative value consideration, Great. which is, much of what we analyze as relative value within our market. Got it, makes sense.
0: So I know it can be difficult to think about predictions and it's a tough question to answer, but as you look into your crystal ball, so to speak, uh, what would be one prediction that you would make into 2020?
4: Well, if I'm thinking somewhat counterintuitively, I'd come back to core. I believe that core assets over the next, say, three to five years could outperform on an absolute and on a relative basis, value-add and opportunistic, certainly value-add which is unusual insofar as, you know, when you're looking at these assets, you might underwrite the one to X, and you might be underwriting the value-add asset to X plus 300 basis points of incremental spread. So the expectation is that it should meaningfully outperform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my own personal bias is toward quality. And it's not to say it will happen, but it could. It could happen just based upon the compression between... Return expectations for value-add and, and return expectations. Sure. Core. Are you saying, on an absolute perspective, the potential is there for core assets to outperform opportunistic or value-add? Yeah. So, the question that you asked was bold prediction. <laughs> uh, so, if I just said, uh, <laughs> you know, I want to come up with something, mealy months, But yes, the uh, I think it's possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, if we have difficult conditions in the market on a look-forward basis, might some of the Things that feel opportunistic and feel like great return potential generators, might the returns be extended? Might the returns be longer to materialize? Mm -hmm. Absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, when I look at the very best assets are the most likely assets to lease, they're the most likely assets to be on time and predictable in terms of outcome. Mm -hmm. So in a downturn, I feel like everything could be affected, obviously. Mm -hmm. But core assets, I believe, could well be affected less. And that could lead to an absolute outperformance. Yeah, that's a really
0: interesting uh, observation to make. And, you know, I think your perspective on relative value within that real estate spectrum is really interesting. So, John, really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you for your time. Delighted. Well, that'll do it for our special two-part series. I want to thank you for listening and thank you for supporting us throughout 2019. Will the risks, opportunities, and predictions discussed here pan out? Will Kim Doe and Ricardo Adroge be right about EM currencies? Will Christopher Smart's call on Europe come through? And what about David Mahalik's call that we may not see a mass wave of fallen angels disrupting the high-yield markets in 2020? Well, for those answers and more, you'll just have to tune in for season two of Streaming Income starting in January 2020. We can't wait to continue the discussion on these topics and others in the year ahead. Don't forget to check out the written version of this Outlook series, which you can find on bearings.com under viewpoints. And with that, thank you so much for all the support and feedback in 2019. We really do appreciate it. From the team here at Bearings, we're wishing you the best in 2020 and beyond. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we wanna hear from you send us an email at podcast at that's podcast at b-a-r-i-n-g-s.com and if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes you can subscribe to the show by searching streaming income on apple podcasts or spotify while you're there please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review they're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find thanks again for listening